Can we thank the choir for leading us in worship this morning? Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, choir. Uh, and as these guys are leaving uh, the stage, we are going to continue our, our worship through giving. If you look over to the left side of your row, you'll find some baskets and you can pass those down. Uh, we're going to return our tithes and offerings back to the Lord. And we'll have a deacon uh, or an usher come by and pick those up here in just a second. Um, as you were doing that, we are in a special giving uh, emphasis this month. Thank you, William. Uh, called Give United. Uh, this is something exciting that we do every September, uh, but here's how it works. Uh, once we reach our necessary budget for the month uh, in our giving, every dollar over that is going to be given to local area ministries and charities. Now, we do this year-round through our missions giving. We just give 10% of our, uh, our budget out to missions operations, but this is on top of that, uh, and this is an opportunity for us to give towards those things. Uh, and there's a lot of different groups that have already applied for uh, these monies that we're going to raise. One of those is Save a Life. Many of you might be familiar with Save a Life. Uh, They've been operating here in Birmingham for over 37 years. They are a crisis pregnancy center uh, that helps young women when they are dealing with an unwanted pregnancy uh, to give them counseling, to give them uh, medical treatment, to give them uh, just resources, uh, support, so many things to help them walk through to avoid an abortion and instead to move towards life instead. They have been doing incredible work in our area, and we're excited to say they're actually going to be expanding that work. In November, they're going to be opening a brand new office right here in Chelsea uh, in the Shelby County Corridor. Uh, And so we're very excited that we'll have yet another place for women to go, for people where we can send folks for help. Uh, We actually have one of the representatives here. Kelly is out uh, uh, in the lobby. And so uh, after the service, if you'd like to have more information about, hey, how can I support? How can I volunteer? I'd love for information about what you guys do. would really love for you guys to go and stop by, get some more information, but we're excited to have uh, such a great partner right here in Shelby County. But let me give you an update on where we are so far. After last week, uh, up through Thursday, we've had just at $62,000 given. Our monthly budget is two fifty. So if we keep on this pace, we're not going to have a whole lot of money to give to other people. So I realize Labor Day, right? But hey, it's time for us to kind of get on board. But here's how this works if this is new for you. Um, we're really not asking anybody to give more than we would normally give. Like it's not the kind of thing where you just want you to give more in September. The goal here really is for us all to give faithfully. If you're an attender here, welcome. We don't expect you to give anything. But for our members, we expect our members to tithe, to start there. To say, hey, I want to start with that first 10% given back to the Lord. Some of us do that. Some of us don't. All right, but listen, this would be a great month to try it out. Here's my challenge. Give it one month, one month of the full tithe. If you're not already doing that, just give the one month, try it out. We have never had anybody die trying this. Seriously, no one has ever been evicted from their homes. What you will discover is two things. Number one, you're going to find that you're amply supplied for, that God is true to his word. He will take care of you even if you gave 10%. Here's the second thing. You're going to find out that as a congregation, not only can we amply meet our monthly needs, we will have so much more that we just get to lavish on all kinds of ministries in the area. We get to be incredibly generous. And so for one month, try it out. You can give uh, right here during the service. You can also give online. That's actually what I do. So you can do that uh, very quickly through our internet, through our website. And so check that 
out, but we'll keep you updated every week. But I pray that we have a lot of extra resources that we get to shower on Save Life and so many other different organizations. Join with us here for this one month. I'm excited to see what happens. But now, grab your Bibles if you will. Let's go to John 3.16. John chapter 3, verse 16 is where we're going to be this morning as we start a brand new sermon series. John 3.16, a verse that you, many of you might be familiar with. Gospel of John chapter 3, verse 16 is where we're going to be. I hope you have a copy of God's Word or maybe a device that you can look that up on and follow along with us. We'll be looking at a lot of places, but we're going to start in John 3, verse 16. While you are turning there, I have a very important question to ask you. It is a crucial question, a monumental question, a question the answer of which is going to define everything. You must have an answer for this question above all others. It is this. Is the earth flat? I hear skeptics among us. There could be people here who do not believe That the earth is flat. You might have been told that the earth is round. That it is a ball floating out in an expanse of space. But oh no, there are many people who might believe, many, maybe a few, who believe that the world is instead flat. You say, Adam, how can that be? Adam, I, I thought that the world was round. I've seen all the pictures. Made up. It's all a conspiracy. Adam, I look out into the sky and I, I see stars rotating around and the, the sun moving across the sky. Just a projection. He said, Adam, what is up there? It's a dome. Who built the dome? Don't worry about it. Listen, I've seen the Truman Show. It's possible. You could be. We could all be in a massive dome. It's all one big flat expanse. And there is a vast, vast conspiracy of people over hundreds of years to try to keep us in a place who have sold us the lie. For what reason? We don't know. Who have told us that the world is dead round, but instead the earth instead is flat. So I'll ask you again, is the earth flat? No, no, it is not. (laughs) If you said yes, we should talk. The earth is not flat, okay? This is a settled fact. Uh, It is not. It's round, okay? (laughs) We live on a round planet. Uh, That is just the truth, okay? It just is. But there are people who believe that the earth is flat. Now, imagine if you are one of these millions, thousands of people who actually believe uh, that the earth is flat. That would change your life, would it not? I mean, it would change your perspective. It would change your perspective on how you see the world. I mean, you would look around and travel and you would not understand the world the way everybody else does. Furthermore, every time you saw a picture like that, you would think that everyone is in on this vast conspiracy to sell us a lie. I mean, that affects how you view authority, other people, your life. It changes things, but it wouldn't actually be true. For the next semester, we're going to do something interesting. We're going to be looking at our worldview of how you and I see the world. And it's an important thing for us to understand because how we see the world is going to impact how we live. How we understand the world to be, what we believe about the world is incredibly important because that is going to determine and define how we actually live our lives. And so it's vitally important that you and I have a biblical worldview. But, but let's, let's define our terms here for a little bit. Let's just kind of see what we're talking about. What do we mean when we say worldview? Well, the worldview is literally just how you see the world. 
Uh, I wear glasses. I've worn glasses my entire life. Uh, And a worldview is like a set of lenses that you look through. Uh, In the morning, I get up and I put my glasses on. But honestly, unless they're broken or smudged, I don't think about them the rest of the day. They're on my face, but I don't see them. You see them, but I don't. But quite literally, everything I see throughout the day is filtered through these lenses. It affects every single thing that I see. That's your worldview. You may not think about it. You may not know it's even there. But everything you see is filtered through your ideas of the world. What is the world? Who am I? What is reality? That world, the way you see things, that's your worldview. Now, you may ask, like, do you have a worldview? Well, that is an easy answer. The answer is yes. You don't need to ask the question, do I have a worldview? You have a worldview. You walked in today with a worldview. Everybody looks at the world in a certain way. So you don't need to ask the question, do I have a worldview? Instead, you need to ask this question, do I have an accurate worldview? Do I have an accurate understanding of reality? Do I see things as they are and not simply how I want them to be? You might say, well, how would I know that? How would I know if I have an accurate worldview? Well, only God can show us what is actually true, unsullied by sin. Only God, because he, he is the only one with a, who knows everything. He's the only one who has the vantage point to understand everything, the capacity to understand everything. Only God can show us what is true, unsullied by sin. I wonder what you think of that statement. In fact, let's put it up on the screen here. And let's just think about this simple statement. Only God can tell us what is true, unsullied by sin. You might look at that statement and decide either yes or no. I agree or disagree. But as soon as I put that up there, your worldview kicked in. Because the only way you can understand that question is through your worldview. Think about this statement. Only God. Does God exist? If he does, what's he like? What kind of God are we talking about? Are there many gods or just one God? Can tell us what is true. What is truth? Can you know truth? Are there multiple truths? Can we have lots of truths? Is there such thing as objective truth unsullied by sin? What is sin? What's right and wrong? Who determines what is right and wrong? How would I know if it's right or wrong? See, these are the assumptions underneath a simple statement like that. Your worldview defines how you understand this question and also whether you agree with it or not. And so your worldview is vastly important. We need to know whether we have a biblical worldview or not. Now, here's what makes up your worldview. Let's look at some other questions. These are some of the questions that define your worldview. Whatever the answers are to questions like these and others, this is what defines your worldview. Questions like, is there a God? Don't assume that just because people are sitting in a room on Sunday morning that everybody here believes that's true. Not everybody in this room does. You might have some serious doubts about that. What's true? Can I know truth? Is the Bible true? Can I trust what it tells me about truth? What's the purpose of your life? Does your life have any meaning beyond simply what you've invented or not? Is there a meaning that you can discover that's given to you, a calling, or do you just make it up? How do you determine right and wrong? You absolutely determine right and wrong. But how do you do that? By your upbringing? By tradition? By what everybody else says? How do you know what's right and what's wrong? What are the most important things in life? What's worth your time, your money, your your influence? Uh, What are the most important things that you need to be focusing on? If heaven and hell exist, how does that affect how I live now? 
Is this all that there is, what you and I can see? Or is there actually a supernatural world, both before life and after physical life? Is there more than what you can see? Well, that would affect how I lived if that is true. And then if the gospel is true, how does that affect how I think and feel about myself, God, and others? If Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came and gave his life, to save us from our sins. He forgave us by his death and resurrection. He's alive and is offering us life by grace through faith in him and not by our works. If that gospel is true, how would that change how I think about God, myself, and other people? Now look, in a room this size, we've got lots of answers to those questions. We would have lots of different answers, lots of ways of looking at that. But whatever the total effect of those answers are, that's your worldview. That's how you see life. And the question is, do I have an accurate worldview? Do I have a true understanding of life or not? You say, Adam, why does it matter? Because if you and I don't have an accurate worldview... We will then live in ways that won't lead to life and truth. They will lead to death and destruction. We will walk ourselves in not into just error, but things that will hurt us and others. We will lose life, not gain it. If you and I don't have an accurate worldview, it is vitally important that you and I have a biblical worldview, a God-centered worldview. One of the most important reasons why you must have a biblical worldview is this, is because the world has a view of its own. The world that you and I live in has a view of its own. And that's why we find ourselves in John chapter 3, verse 16. You may be familiar with the first verse, but let's read a few of these verses here. This is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, and listen to what he says. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. For God so loved the world. Now you see that word world there in verse 16, but it actually shows up a lot in this passage. The word world shows up five times in this passage alone. This is kind of a catchword for John. You read it here in the Gospels all over the place. You'll also see it in his letters as well. The word that he uses in the Greek is the word cosmos. It's where we get the word cosmos. Where we think about like the universe. Okay, that's the word world that he uses. And he uses it in a couple different ways just like we do. Sometimes when he says world, he just means like the planet, right? Like just like physical reality. But most often when John uses this world, that's not what he means. Instead, what John is talking about when he says world, he's talking about fallen humanity. You can see this in verse 19. Look what happens. In verse 19, it says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Okay, what does that mean? Well, he's talking about Jesus. 
Jesus is the light of the world. Three times in the book of John, Jesus will state explicitly, I am the light of the world. So Jesus is the light. The light has come into the world. Look at the next phrase. It says, but people loved the darkness rather than the light. Now you can see him translating his metaphor in real time. Light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world, but people loved the darkness. So he equates world with people. He's not talking about physical reality or even existence. He's talking about people. And you can see that by how he qualifies these people. There's three attributes of the world. It's that they love the darkness. At the end of verse 19, it says their works were evil. And then in verse 20, it says that they hate the light. So the world is our people who love the darkness. Their works are evil and they actually hate the light. Now, why in the world would people hate the light, which is Jesus? Why would the world people hate Jesus? Because they like doing whatever they want. I don't want anybody to tell me what is right and wrong. I want to decide that for myself. Nobody should be in authority over me. I make up my own rules. I determine right and wrong. You don't get to condemn me. I am my own person. And I want to do whatever I want, even if you consider it to be evil. Therefore, the world hates the light. When John talks about the world, he is talking about something specific. We can gain a definition of the world. The world is this. It is the system of values and ideas that has set itself against the Lord and his kingdom. The world is the system of human values and ideas that sets itself against the Lord and his kingdom. We're not talking about one individual person or even a group of people. We're talking about fallen humanity as a whole. It is a system of values and ideas that sets itself against the Lord and his kingdom. And so if that is the case, we need to be aware that we have an enemy to contend with. In this life, we as Christians have three enemies, three enemies you must be aware of. They are the devil, our flesh, and the world. Last year, we did a whole series on spiritual warfare. You have an enemy in the devil. We are in the midst of spiritual warfare, whether you like it or not. Go back to last spring when we did the good fight. You can read, you can listen to all the things that we talked about in Ephesians chapter 6 of spiritual warfare. This past spring, we did another series on our flesh. Inside of us, we have sinful desires that live in us, that draw us away from the Lord. And we all need to be aware of this. We have to contend with our own flesh. But then outside of us, there is also the world. Again, not individual people, but a world system of ideas that sets itself against the Lord and his kingdom. So what you and I need to understand is this. The world is not neutral. The world that you and I live in is not neutral towards us. You might say, Adam, look, this just sounds like all too much. Okay, I'm just living my life and trying to be a good person. That's enough, isn't it? As if you're on neutral ground. Adam, I'm staying away from the really terrible stuff, so I'm good, right? No, because every inch of this life is contested territory. Every ounce of existence is contested territory, and you got to pick a side. John will say this in 1 John. So here's his letter. This is not the gospel of John. This is him writing later uh, letters to the churches. Same author, different book. 
He says, don't love the world or the things in the world. For anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. This is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world has desires. The world has ideas. And it has an, uh, it has an agenda, quite literally, to pull us away from the Lord and its kingdom. The world does not want authority. The world does not want to be beholden to anybody. And therefore, it is going to pull us in ways that are contrary to the word of God. And this is happening all the time. We may not be totally aware of it, but this is happening all the time. When you and I live out in the world, it is sometimes overtly, but most, most often subtly, influencing us. This is happening through our media. This is happening through books. This is happening through the internet. This is happening through TikTok. This is happening through uh, podcasts. This is happening through television shows that we watch, uh, you know, things that we listen to or read. Uh, this is what our friends say, how we grew up. All the things of this world is subtly influencing us. Think about a sitcom that is going to show us a sexually licentious lifestyle. They're going to show a bunch of people not following the ways of the Lord. They're going to be sleeping around and doing whatever, but there's going to be a laugh track behind it to let us know this is fine. It's cool. This is what everybody is doing. See, nobody thinks it's weird. And so we're just going to laugh about it. But this is normal. This is the subtle idea that we take in every time we watch something like that. Now, compound it by all these things and a shift begins to take place. We begin to see life through the lens of the world, the values of the world, instead of seeing life through the truth of what actually is through the truth of the gospel. This is happening at all points. And so it's vitally important that we are aware that the world is not neutral. Furthermore, if you and I continue to live amongst the world, this actually changes us from the inside out. If we do not, if we're not aware of our worldview, if we're not aware and make specific choices about who we are and how we're going to live, this will change us over time. Look at this in Ephesians chapter four. Uh, if you were here with us in our core series a few weeks ago, we looked at, uh, we ended uh, verses 11 through 16. These are the next verses in that book. Listen to what Paul says. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the, as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, watch the progression here. In verse 17, look at the words. Don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. These are all mind terms. These are all thinking terms. He's talking about worldview. How do you see life? How do you understand life? What do you believe about life? Well, these people are darkened in their understanding. And then look at the result. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Okay, if you've ever asked a question, how come people do such bad things? That's the answer. Because almost no one considers themselves to be evil. Have you ever noticed that? You ever met an evil person? like a self-avowed evil person. You ever met this person? Like, hi, I'm evil, right? 
You ever met that person? Do you know anybody who wakes up in the morning and goes, I'm just so evil. How can I spread destruction to mayhem wherever I go? No one says this. No one. And yet we visit hell upon one another all the time. How does this happen? Because people become darkened in their understanding. They live in such a way that they think they're doing right. And what it actually brings is destruction. You ever wondered how good people can do bad things? You ever wondered that? How come good people do bad things? They seem like such good people. Well, they didn't just decide to do a bad thing. They had a reason why. They talked themselves into it. Their worldview got askew and they made decisions. And in the moment, it made sense. In the moment, they thought they were doing something okay, only to find out that it has reaped destruction upon everyone. You ever met people who claim to be believers and they say, Adam, it just doesn't work. I show up at church, but nothing happens. Adam, I've been there. I mean, I listen. I don't, I mean, I come, I don't know, once a month. I mean, I would read my Bible. I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes, you know, but how come it's not working? Well, because you live 98% of your life in the world and you live according to the ways of the world. And you thought 2% going to church one Sunday is going to fix it. Seriously? Doesn't work like that. Scientists have talked about neuroplasticity, that our brains quite literally are malleable. They change over time with different stimuli and ideas. This is true with our souls as well. As you and I live with a worldly perspective, we actually become more like the world. But when you live with a godly perspective, a biblical perspective, you actually become more like the Lord that we're focused on. We need him. So it is vitally important that you have a biblical worldview that instead of following these ways of the world, instead we follow after the Lord and what he does. Because here's something we need to understand. Ideas have consequences. If you don't learn anything over the course of this series, I need you to burn this into your brain. Ideas have consequences. The way we think and believe is going to get fleshed out in action. And if you and I do not believe in ways that are in accordance with truth, with reality, that is by nature going to lead us to destruction. Please don't think that these ideas are harmless, that the ways of the world are harmless, or you don't really need to have a robust belief in the Lord. All ideas have consequences, whether positive or negative. I'm going to fire through a bunch of different stuff. I can show you so many examples this through scripture, but also in our life as well. Let's look at a few examples. First off, let's look at the Sadducees. You may have heard of the Sadducees before. Uh, you instead may have heard of the Pharisees. Jesus tangled with them a lot. Uh, that was a, uh, a, Jew, a part of the Jewish religion. They were, the Pharisees were fairly conservative in their interpretation, conservative in their lifestyle. The Sadducees were their opposite. They would be the equivalent of liberal believers today. Uh, where they claimed to be Jewish, but they didn't really live it out all that much. They did not believe in most of the Old Testament. Uh, they did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in an afterlife at all. Uh, and so they were very heavily involved in politics, uh, but they didn't really live it out. They, they'd fudge on a lot of different things. Well, the Sadducees didn't like Jesus either, and they tried to trip him up one day. So look at this, Mark 12. It says, And the Sadducees came to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take up the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Well, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. 
And the second took her, and then he died and left no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Well, in this resurrection of yours, when, will they, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. And as far as the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. That's one of my favorite verses of all scripture. Did you see that? (laughs) Jesus just looked at him and said, nope, you're totally off. You're just totally off base. These guys came to Jesus, think they were going to trip up this rube who actually believes that there's the supernatural world, that there's this resurrection. And so they take this Jewish law and they say, see, Jesus, this is silly. You can't make that work. I mean, this woman would be married to, to seven people. So how does that actually work? And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't actually believe in the scriptures. I know that. And you really don't know the power of God. You're making assumptions about the afterlife that you don't know about. It's not going to be the way you think it is. But please don't miss this. God's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. You don't understand. Your worldview is wrong. And it led to consequences for them. You see, the Sadducees, because they didn't believe in a future judgment, had to get all involved in politics because the only justice there could be is justice in this life. And so they're willing to fudge on their religious obligations as long as they had spiritual power. Furthermore, contrary to what this little um, uh, example that they gave, when it came to divorce according to the Sadducees, Sadducees believed that you could divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever. Didn't matter. Smallest little thing. You're tired of her? Kick her to the street. Didn't matter. You could divorce any day of the week, all day long, marry as many people as you want, divorce them all. Did not matter. They didn't believe in justice. They didn't believe in the love of the Lord. They didn't believe these things, and it filled itself out in action. Here's the worst thing. The Son of God came and talked to them, and they didn't see it. God himself stood in front of them and spoke to them, and they could not see him because their beliefs were wrong. Their understanding, what they were looking for was wrong ideas, have consequences. What about the Colossians? These are believers. You can read this in the letter of the Colossians, but the Colossians have a different problem. Folks in Colossae were being affected by a uh, heresy called Gnosticism. It actually predates Christianity, but they kind of took on Christianity and mixed it all together. It was this weird ideology that had a whole bunch of uh, angels and, and levels. It was honestly like a video game where you had to like, know like, these special words to get to like, the next level. And then you get to see this other angel, but you had to know the special incantation. And then you had to go through these like, certain rituals to make sure you were pure enough to get to another level to get again to get here. And if you got to the top, you had this secret knowledge that nobody else had. But you had to go through all the rigmarole and you had to know all the secret stuff and the codes to get there. And there's people in Colossae, believers, who are getting sucked in by this. Look what Paul says. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about their visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. He says, don't worry about all that. Why are you just taking on all these weird rules and trying to get this? You already have all the knowledge you need. It's in Christ. 
It's in the Lord. Follow after him and he will nourish you. Don't go on about all these things you've invented, all these dreams you've come up with. You say, Adam, I can't relate to that. Of course you can. This is cancel culture. You ever try to keep up with cancel culture? It's exhausting because the rules change like every four minutes. What can you say? What can you say? When can you say it? Who can you say it to? What has been invented? That really, what is that? There's a new name. What is that? I don't even know what that means, but I've offended somebody else. Oh no, better figure out something else. Change this now. Do that. You've got to figure out all the rules. Contort yourself. Figure out all the things. I've got to do all these things so I can be accepted by the world. Who's inventing this? Us making it up. Dreams, visions, we puffed up in our head, and yet we're contorting ourselves to figure it out. It's the same thing. Your ideas have consequences. Colossians, we're dealing with that. What about the Galatians? Galatians had an opposite problem, semi-opposite problem. Uh, These were people who were really all obsessed with the law. These were Jewish people who had grown up and become Christians. But after they had accepted Christ, people came along and said, ha-ha, yeah, Jesus is great and all. That cross was fun and all. Grace is nice. But if you really want to be accepted by God, you better do all the law. And if you don't do it all, then God's not going to keep you. He's going to kick you out. And so they started getting all upset. Oh, I really got to do all these things right. Oh, I got to do all the rules. Oh, I got to do this. Have I done enough? Oh, do I, I messed up. I don't know. Maybe God's going to kick me out then. They are all of a sudden weighed down yet again by guilt, by shame. They've got no assurance of their salvation because they're too busy trying to earn back their salvation. Look what Paul says to them. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you not being perfected by the flesh? He's speaking to them, says, man, I gave you the gospel. You're saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by his grace, not by your works. You can be confident in your salvation because you didn't earn it. If you didn't earn it in the first place, you can't unearn it in the second place. We walk in, the, in holiness because of the love of God, not to keep the love of God. Look, this is legalistic Christians today. who say, oh yeah, I believe in the Lord. And you, it might be some of you and you live under a constant burden of guilt and shame because you just can't do enough. Because you've messed up yet again. And sure, God can't love me after yet another failure. And so you work harder and you do more. You got to have it perfect. And if it's not perfect, you can't give yourself any rest. Okay, you have a faulty worldview. You have false beliefs that are living itself out in action. Ideas have consequences. Paul points them back to the gospel. He says, no, you can have assurance, peace, in the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, what about the Corinthians? The Corinthians were an interesting case. The Corinthians, well, look, look, they loved them some worship. They really did. They were awesome about their worship services, had great worship services. Holiness, not so great. They just didn't do so well on the holiness front. Uh, and so, listen, they'd have their great worship services and they would do whatever they want. Uh, here's what they're saying. All things are lawful for me. Yeah, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, yeah, but I'm not going to be dominated by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. Yeah, but God's going to destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Here you can see a faulty worldview clearest. These places with quotation marks, he's quoting slogans that the Corinthians are saying. This is how they're defending their actions. 
Because what they've done is, is they've just bought into Roman philosophy wholesale. You see, Romans at the time believed in something called materialism, not the Madonna kind of materialism, but like, like, a, like an actual materialism where, where matter, all material things, were evil or corrupt, but everything spiritual is good. All right, so matter, bad, spirit, good. So people thought, look, my body is bad. It's corrupted, but my soul is great. So the Corinthians said, look, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Uh, look, my body is just bad. It's corrupt as it is. Um, but I, I believe in Christ. I'm a Christian, so my soul's fine, right? But, but my body has needs. Just like my body has needs for food, what's well, got needs for sex. And so here's the deal. I can take my body, and after worshiping on Sunday, I can just go down the street to the corner and sleep with the temple prostitutes of this pagan religion and then show back up at church on Sunday, and we're all cool, right? No, we are not cool. Not cool at all. But they're going, but I got needs. Look at the body for food, for food, food for the body. It's just matter. It doesn't matter, Adam. And Paul says, oh, actually it does because the, the, Lord is, the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. You misunderstand reality. The Romans are wrong. Matter is not evil. Matter is not corrupt. God created it to be good inherently. And so your body is good inherently and your body and your soul are connected. This is why there is no room for sexual immorality, period, end of story, in any way, shape, or form. That is any sex outside of a heterosexual marriage, period, period. If you would like to know where the Bible says it, it's right there. Everybody get that? Write it down, okay? But that's what he's saying, They misunderstand reality and it is leading them into licentiousness. It is leading them into destruction because they misunderstand reality. Ideas have consequences. So Adam, that's what they were dealing with. How does that happen today, by the way? It happens today typically with pornography, not just sexual licentiousness. You see a lot of that too. You've got polyamory and everything like that. But you see this in pornography. People say, well, Adam, I'm not actually going down to the temple prostitute. I'm not going actually out and sleeping with anybody. It's just pictures, right? That's not actually affecting me, is it? Yes, it is. Please do not believe the world that is trying to normalize pornography. It is quite literally rewiring your brain. It is changing you whether you like it or not. There is no place for pornography in your life. It is going to destroy you. It has destroyed many people in our congregation, in the church, in our culture. Okay, when we say, oh, it's fine. I can be a believer. It's fine. We're acting just like the Corinthians. These ideas have consequences. Your worldview matters. What about something a little bit closer to home? Let's move up forward in time. Uh, let's talk about even just the past, I don't know, a century or so. Whenever people talk about evil, uh, Hitler is always the easy target, right? I mean, he's like like poster child for evil in all places. But let's look a little bit more broadly back at World War II. You see, Hitler could never accomplish all the things that he did without help. And when he came to power, he knew that he would never be able to run the country unless he co-opted all of the institutions of that country, and that included the church. In Germany during, the time, during this time, most people were Christians. Vast numbers of them. This is Lutheranism. This is where Martin Luther grew up. This is a smart Western country. Hitler comes to power and he starts infiltrating people into the church to insert two ideas. Those ideas were racism and imperialism. And they wanted the churches to go along with those two ideas. That their race was the best and that we should conquer everybody else. Here's the sad reality. Two-thirds of the church went along with them. Two-thirds of the Christians of that day went along with it. 
Hitler can't go kill millions of people by himself. He had to have help. And two thirds of the Christian church was complicit. They said, it's fine. We'll take those bad ideas and we'll just put them right next to Jesus. And surely it'll all work out, right? Only a third of the church resisted. It was called the confessing church. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, by the way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and other pastors banded together to say, no, I'm sorry, Hitler is not the Messiah. Uh, No, we do not believe in those values that are contrary to the word of God. We don't want your politics. We don't want your stuff. We're going to follow after Christ and Christ alone. We're not going to do that. And for that, they would pay with their lives. There were believers who stood up to them, lots of them. But it's sad to say that this worldview infiltrated that church at the time. And what about today? What's the dominant worldview of today? Well, in our culture today, that dominant worldview is radical expressive individualism. We live in a culture where everybody says that my feelings determine reality, that all truth is relative, that I create my own truth. You have your own truth. So you do your thing. I'll do my thing. But you need to understand you must agree with and approve and acknowledge what I believe to be true. Whatever I have invented, whatever I feel is now real for me. You may not see that, but it is actually real. Therefore, you must accept it. You must believe that it is actually true. We are all individuals, all in our own little islands. And I can do all things by myself, but you must agree that all of my feelings determine my reality. This is radical, expressive individual. Individualism, and it will destroy us. Because here's the sad truth. Your feelings don't determine reality. And simply because we feel things doesn't make it actually true. This is self-evident. And yet we have now adopted ideas that it is not. This is where you get gender fluidity. This is where you get abortion rights. This is where you get so many things that you and I are dealing with in our culture. It stems from a radical expressive individualism. This is not going to work out like you think it will. I just watched a docu-series called The Anarchists. Uh, It's a true story about these people. They are actually anarcho-capitalists. So they're anarchists, but they believe in private property. Go figure that one out. Um, It's a paradox they didn't really think through very well. Um, But they moved down to Acapulco because Acapulco is a lawless region. This is a true story, by the way. I mean, I've seen the documentary. Um, And they think, we want to be down here. We don't have any rules. Nobody can tell us what to do. We make up our own rules. Nobody can say I'm allowed to do anything. I'm not paying taxes. I'm not doing anything. I'm going to make up my own reality. I get to do whatever I want to do. I determine my family. However, I want to determine my family, burn all the law books. I want everything my way. What could go wrong? Spoiler alert, everything. Over the course of six years, it all falls in on itself in increasingly tragic ways. Multiple people will die. Families are ripped apart. Because when you and I say, I must be treated as an individual, I own myself, no one gets to tell me what to do, and we assume that everybody should do that, this collapses in on itself. Ideas have consequences. So let me ask you, what's your worldview? How do you answer all those questions? How do you see life? Because how you answer those questions is important. It has consequences for you both now and in the future and for everybody around you. What's your worldview? So we're going to take the rest of the semester to really answer that question. For the first half of the season, we're actually going to look at a biblical worldview. We're going to answer some of these questions. We're going to say, what does the Lord teach us about reality, about truth? And we're going to take five, six weeks to really kind of build our Christian worldview. And then in the back half of the series, four or five weeks, we're going to look at the view of the world. 
What are these ideas of the world that we have to live with? Ideas of sex and gender and sexuality and race and, and politics and justice and all these things that we're swimming in and trying to, to navigate. How do we navigate these issues? Well, we need to understand our own worldview before we can even tackle those issues. But this is going to take us really the rest of the year up until Advent. And I want to invite you to join us on that journey to do the work. To say, I want to learn. I want to dive into the word. I want to look into the eyes uh, of the Lord and, and let him teach me this truth that I might live in a way that avoids this destruction and instead finds the life that God made me for. But I warn you, if you want to go on this journey with us, it's going to cost you a bit. There's a few things you're going to need for this journey. I hope all of you come, but it's going to cost you a few things. The first thing it's going to cost you is this. It's going to cost you some time. This is not the kind of thing we can do in a sermon. This is not the kind of thing you can do in an afternoon. To answer all of these questions, we're going to have to have some conversations. You might have to read a book or listen to a podcast or sit down and have conversations with your community group to sit and really think through each question and come down with some answers. That takes work. It takes time. It might be stressful at times. That's all right. We can do this together, but let's take the time to answer these questions. And again, these are the kind of questions that we're going to be looking at. Think them through. Do I actually understand the answers and where did I get those answers? Here's the second thing. It's going to take some humility. It's going to take some humility. Invariably, as we walk along this journey, you and I are going to find places where what we believe does not align with what God says is true. That's not just you. That's everybody. We all started as fallen humanity and God is growing us, helping us, revealing himself to us. But still, for all of us, there's going to be issues that what God says and what you believe or think are not going to align. Uh Uh-oh. So here's the question. What do you do then? Let's imagine if I could take one of those flat earthers uh, and put them on a rocket ship and we could go, I don't know, 15, 20 miles up and we could show them the round earth. And then just for good measure, we're going to take a, take a loop, right? Let's do an orbit. Let's see the whole planet, see the whole thing on the rocket ship. They're going to see that. Imagine if I could take a flat earther up there and show them that. How do you think they would respond? Well, I imagine some of them might get a little bit sheepish and say, Okay, you got me. Um, I was wrong. That is indeed a globe, all right? That is not a flat earth. And we would say, great, I'm glad you agree. But I imagine some of them would double down. I imagine some of them going, it's all a trick. This isn't a rocket. What soundstage am I on? That's a screen. Do you do this for all the people? This is how you get there. I don't believe you people. I'm not really floating. Why would they do that? Because of their pride. Because we don't like admitting that we're wrong. I don't like admitting that I'm wrong. You don't either. Because no one does. When we discover that our worldview is out of alignment with the Lord, are we going to react with humility because God is sovereign, because he is good, because he is smarter than us, because he has the right vantage point and we don't? Or are we going to double down and demand in our pride, nope, still going to believe whatever I want to believe regardless? Okay, that's going to short circuit you. If you want to walk this path, it's going to require some humility from all of us. Third thing, it's going to require some perseverance. You're going to need some perseverance. Remember, the world has ideas. 
It has beliefs. And when you and I stop walking in step with the world, the world is going to react to that. Listen to what Jesus himself said. This is John 15, verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, the world is this system of ideas, values, fallen humanity. When we live like they want us to live and agree with them, yeah, they think we're great. But the moment you and I say, no, 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 I'm going to live according to a biblical worldview. I'm not forcing that on you, but I'm going to live that on a, according to a biblical worldview. Yeah, they're not going to be happy. You're going to get called names. It might cost you things. And the question is, do we have enough courage? Do we believe in the Lord enough to say, I want the Lord and the life that he gives in him more than I want acceptance from the people here? Here's the question. If all you're going to go do is just try to make everybody happy, you know they're not going to take care of you, right? These people who change their mind every other day, they're not going to take care of you. They can't save your soul. They don't even know what they're talking about. They drift off into destruction. Do we really want to please the people of the world? Or am I going to choose to say, I want to serve the one who came after me? It's going to require some perseverance. But here's the final thing. It's going to require some love. It's going to require love. Let's end where we began. Do you remember John 3, 16? For God so loved the world. I hope that means more to you now. When he said world, he doesn't simply mean existence. For God so loved the world. The world that hates him. The world that will crucify him. The world that has set itself against him and his ways. Jesus doesn't come to condemn the world. He says, no, I come to save the world. And even though you hate me, I have come to love you. And I will give my life on the cross. I will die for your sins to offer you brand new life in me. It is the love that God gives to us. Can we receive the love that God has for us? And then look, we're not looking for ways to go yell at and hate the world in return. Instead, I pray that we can find ways to extend the love of God to a world that desperately needs it. That's the journey we're going to be going on. And it's a journey I pray that you will join with us on. So bow your heads and close your eyes if you will. Heads bowed and eyes closed. We're going to close in worship in just a moment. What's your worldview? You don't have to tell me, but do you know? What are the answers to those questions? Where'd you get those answers? How do you know they're true? Do they work? These are important questions because it's going to determine everything about your life. It matters. What if the Lord is calling you to evaluate some things, to think some things through and say, no, I, I need to know what a, a Christ-centered worldview looks like. I want to see life the way he sees it. Truly, in reality, unsullied by sin. I, I want to follow after him. I'm under no illusions that we're all going along on the journey. I wish we would, but we're not. Some of us won't. But the door is open and he's inviting you. Come along. Let's discover what life can be when we follow after the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Father, help us. Speak to us. Show us your ways. 
your will yourself, that we might know you, live in you. Father, show us the ways we're being lied to by the world, led astray by the world, by ourselves, by our very own flesh. And Lord, save us from that. Reveal your truth that we might walk in life. God, I pray that you would draw us and even more to us, Father, that together we could follow after you. Show us how to not only receive your love, but to share that love with a world, even if they're antagonistic, that desperately needs it. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray.